Welcome back. Good to see you. If you're new here, my name is Joel, and um, we are going through the book of Matthew at the moment here at Emmanuel, and we're in the, the eighth chapter still. We're going through it uh, slowly so that we can uh, really feast on it. It's a, it's a rich and very dense portrayal of the, the life and teaching of, of Jesus. It's one of the four that we have in the, the, the New Testament. Uh, it's the first of them, and, uh, and it, it just, it's worth our close attention. So we're in chapter 8, <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at a story which will be very familiar to most of us today, and I believe it has so much for us to learn from and gain from. So uh, we'll read from that in just a moment. Um, before we do that, a quick uh, explanation of, a, of a, a new development here that you just need to be informed about. Um, we are serving communion um, as we ordinarily do every, here, every, every week here uh, at Emmanuel on Sundays. But instead of it being uh, grape juice, it will be mainly wine and grape juice will also be available. Uh, we've made a slight change here, which we've been planning for a little while, and uh, we've, we've, over the, the last few months, in fact, as a group of elders across all of the sites, all of the different locations where Emmanuel meets, discussed this and come to a point of uh, accepting together that to celebrate communion as biblically as we can is important. That's why we do it. We do it because we want to be faithful and obedient to the teaching of, of the scriptures. And although uh, we don't mean that communion without wine uh, is, is some step of uh, huge disobedience, we do want to be nevertheless as obedient as we feel we've got clear instruction uh, to be. And we don't want to be sort of vague about it. And the scripture is very clear about bread and wine. The Bible doesn't speak about uh, uh, bread and grape juice. And some, some might uh, want to contend this or might even have good questions. Can, you know, can, can we take wine? Is wine even uh, allowed? In the New Testament, did people even have wine? And the answer is absolutely they, they did. It doesn't uh, make sense any other way. Sometimes people have suggested that grape juice was the, the, the normal wine of the New Testament, which is rather a nonsense when you consider that the New Testament also says uh, in Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine. It wouldn't make any sense to say that if the wine wasn't ordinary alcoholic wine. And so uh, we, we want to be as faithful to the, to the New Testament as we, we can be. We want to actually see communion not only as a sort of a ritual that we go through, but actually what it is intended to be. In the New Testament, uh, Bread and wine would have been part of this regular meal, this feast that the believers would have had together, partly because, actually, God invites, encourages his people through Scripture to, to be festive before him, even in some places with strong drink, as is mentioned in books like Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And so we understand that this isn't just a, a negligible thing. It's, it's actually worth thinking, you know, what kind of drink is it that reminds us of festivity, that reminds us of celebration, that reminds us of a sense of occasion? And, uh, and so wine does do that, and that's a, that's a biblical uh, principle. So we thought, well, let's, let's, let's return to that. The reason we've had grape juice is for the 
I guess, very commendable reason that we know that for many people in a given congregation, there'll be an issue of conscience here. They won't feel uh, free drinking alcohol. And some might even feel that it's inappropriate and, and unwise, given their, their, the, the temptations that they might face. And so we, we understand that. We want to make grape juice available to you if that's the situation in which you find yourself. But we think it's a bit of an imposition on scripture, a bit of a presumption to say, well, we just won't have wine, we'll just have grape juice, because the Bible doesn't really say that. And all through the history of the church, the normal celebration of communion has involved ordinary wine. That's been, that's been the way it's been done uh, through most churches, through most of church history. And it's only fairly recent that grape juice has been introduced, so we, we'd rather not uh, make that the norm, but make that the exception. So I just wanted to make that clear. It should be fairly clearly designated on the tables, which is which if you need to know. And we, we want to make sure that you feel looked after. We've communicated carefully with people in advance of today. And there is information on our website. If you're a member here, you'll get your site leader's email today to tell you a bit more. There is a page on the website. I think it's www.wearemanuel.com forward slash communion. Uh, if you want to look at this a little further. Anyway, just by way of intro, let's get into this story from Matthew chapter 8, and the, the words will come up on the screen as the video plays this reading. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marvelled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's just pray together. Father, thank you again for your kindness in speaking to us through Scripture about your son Jesus. He is the light of the world. He is the radiance of your glory. And we need to have our eyes open to receive revelation. Lord, we cannot change. We cannot be rescued. We cannot have hope without you opening our eyes. So please, let genuine spiritual light burst out from these words today. As we investigate this story, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would show us your son, Jesus, and we would, each of us, be changed. In Jesus' name we ask. Just yourself right now, before I start, just say to God in your heart, Lord, speak to me. You may not be used to praying Perhaps it will be the first prayer you've prayed for, for, for all of your life or for many years, but pray it anyway. Say, God, if you're there, speak to me. Amen. Amen. Well, this is a, uh, an unlikely situation for the sailors in this boat. They are asking the help, um, the input, the advice of a carpenter. Uh, that's, that's not what they would have expected to be doing when they, they set out from the shore earlier. Uh, it was Jesus' idea that they get in the boat. It was, it was Jesus' idea that they travelled to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, as Matthew calls it. It's, it's a lake. It's a very large lake, but, but in Matthew's way of describing it, he, he, he sees it as a sea. And uh, I guess most of the Jewish people who lived around that area would have referred to it as the sea. 
And yet these, these sailors get into such a place of turmoil and panic that they, they don't know what to do. And thrown against those circumstances, they, they decide to call out for the, the help of the least likely person in the boat, I dare say. Most of these guys would have been fishermen or, or, or people who were used to the water, certainly more used to it than, than Jesus, who spent his life in a, a woodwork shop, in a, in a carpentry shop. His dad was a, a carpenter. Uh, he was a man of the land, not a man of the water. And suddenly it's, help us! We've, we've, we've been driven to that level of need. We're now asking Jesus for help. And I suppose that's a bit of a, bit of a parable in itself for how many of us start, start our relationship with Jesus. He might be the, the last person you expected to call out to. Perhaps that's how some of you became Christians. You, you reached a point of desperate need and you went through the list of possible answers to your need. And you may have given each one uh, a little bit of time, a little bit of an attempt. You know, have, have a crack at this religion or this drug or this, this therapy or, or this relationship. And you got to the bottom of the list and it was Jesus at the bottom. All the other things, none of them have helped, none of them have worked. I've gone through crisis after crisis, and now it's come to this. I'm talking to Jesus. Maybe just now when I asked you to pray with me, some of you thought to yourself, I can't believe I'm even in church, and now I'm talking to Jesus. Maybe some sort of dreadful need or crisis or storm of some kind is what drove you into this very room today. Could be that church is the last place you expected to find yourself. But so often that's the way. God has a way of doing this with us. He has a way of driving circumstances in our lives to, to create what wasn't there before inside us. A sense of our, our desperation. We, we didn't ever think we'd call out to Jesus, but... but we must now. There's, there's nothing for it. I'm, I just, Jesus, if you're there, help me. Help me. And it says something. It says actually that, that, that Christianity may even be for some of us in our imaginations just some form of getting away from the troubles and the realities of life. That's what people do. They call out to, to Jesus in order to escape but bear in mind that that's, that's actually the opposite of what's happened here. These are people who are following Jesus. These are the ones who left the crowd to go with the master. They're like, no, we, we are hardcore. We want to be with you everywhere. We don't want to just watch you doing the show. We're not just there for the public event. We're not just you know, following from a distance or following on Twitter. We are, we are following you into the boat. We are, we are with you. And Jesus, with those kinds of people, the people who are real followers, what does he do? He takes them into the storm, into the eye of the storm. This says something about what, what following Jesus is really like. Be real. If you, if you follow Jesus, you, you're not to expect that this gives you some kind of escape clause from all of the difficulties and trials of life. In fact, what you're more likely to find is that you get kind of fast-tracked to them. You get, you get Jesus saying, okay, we'll go into the storm. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go this way. And he knows what he's doing. If you've chosen to follow him, 
my friend, expect, expects some storms. He's training these disciples. He's teaching them what following him is going to be like. And he's teaching them how to come through it. How to handle the various storms that they will face. Because these, these guys in this boat, his plan for them is that they will in fact change the world. He, he's going to send them out at the end of Matthew to all nations. All nations. He says, go into all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. His plan for these disciples has always been that they would go into the world and face all of the potential hazards and opposition and disappointment and difficulty possible. Anything on the list, they're going to face it. Jesus is training up world changers in these chunks of the Bible. He is, a, he is a superb teacher and trainer. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly how to train people. So this is a master class in discipleship here. And what we're going to do in the time we have now is just look at how he does it how he uses this, this episode to train. And by doing that, see how he uses life to train us who want to follow him. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're thinking, well, I don't know if I even want to follow Jesus, I hope by the end of this message you, you have some idea about why it's worth doing that. But first of all, let's, let's look at the danger, okay? Very simply, the danger in this situation. There, there is a massive threat that these Sailors, these fishermen, are facing. They, they didn't plan to do it, but by following Jesus, they've been thrown into danger. And the danger is real. The, the storms on the Sea of Galilee are fairly legendary. In fact, they, they you know, are a feature of the Galilean uh, geography to this day. And I'm no expert, you know, no meteorologist. I don't know exactly how it works. I, I read the, the chunks of information that tell me how it works, and I'm no brighter at the end of them uh, because I'm not smart on weather. Uh, but nevertheless, th these kind of squalls, as they would be called, are a, a feature of the landscape. It's to do with... I'm not even going to say. I, I'm just, I'm, I forget it. I'm not even going to try it. But anyway, they happen. And they're dangerous. They're storms that, that would be fatal. Pe people in this boat will have had relatives and friends and stories of others who had drowned. So they know this is real stuff. Maybe you've been in a similar situation where you've genuinely wondered if you're going to last the night out, whether you're going to last the, 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 the ride or, or the voyage or the flight. It feels so dangerous right now. But you need to also bear in mind that for these guys, it isn't just the, the, the weather, it's not just the, the water, it's what seems represented by those things. These were men who knew uh, the stories of God's ways with his people. They, they, they knew the stories of the Bible. They would have grown up with this as their folklore. These were their stories. And their stories were stories that involved storms, that involved floods, that involved mighty seas, seas that were held back while God protected his people as they went from Egypt out of slavery into freedom, and then seas that were plunged back over the enemies of God as Pharaoh and his soldiers tried to pursue the escaping slaves. God's way with water is to use it as a means of judgment, as a final means of destruction. It's terrifying for them. They, they knew how mighty water could be. 
They also knew it as a, a thing of chaos. It spoke of the absence of God, it seemed. Even in the first page of the Bible, when it speaks of the Spirit hovering, brooding over the waters before God speaks creation into form and existence. Water represents a kind of chaos. And for, for these Jews, with their biblical imagination, they might have understood it as even something of an evil place. We don't go out to the sea. We, we don't like to particularly. We, we prefer not to. Jonah went out to sea, and it was him going away from the presence of God, away from the face of God. Jonah goes out to sea and then gets uh, thrown out of the boat, descending into the depths, going down into judgment. So for these people, H2O is not, it doesn't really cover it. It's not just a chemical. It's not just water. This is, there's something about this moment in their life which feels chaotic and evil. These are the forces of darkness that are, that are kind of ganging up around the boat. And, and they, their imaginations and, and everything they know are alerted to the, 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 the danger, the, the threat, and even the hostility of the moment. This is terrifying for them. So there's a huge danger that they're facing. But then look as well at the sheer disillusionment. So we've, we've got the danger in that, that verse uh, 24. Behold, remember Matthew's seemingly favorite word, Maybe sometime you might want to count the number of beholds there are in Matthew. Matthew is very keen on us looking carefully. He wants us to see something. He keeps saying it. Behold, behold, look, look, look. I want you to see. Don't miss the point of this. Behold, there arose a great storm. But then verse, uh, sorry, end of verse 24. But he, speaking of Jesus, he, the master, was asleep. He's asleep. So you've got danger, but you've got disillusionment. Disillusionment. And, and the disillusionment is, I suppose, I suppose especially kind of driven in by the fact that up till now, he seems to be just prevailing over everything. Up till now, this, this teacher, this rabbi, this Jesus... He can take all comers. I mean, everything. You know, the crowds came out to see him. The crowds came out to listen to him. And he spoke with authority. Like no one else can speak. And then a leper came towards him. A leper. And Jesus is not frightened. Jesus even touches the leper. And Jesus isn't even infected. The leper gets healed, in fact. Jesus defeats leprosy. Jesus can take a big platform and preach to the, to the multitudes. Jesus can heal a centurion's servant from a distance. He doesn't even go there. He just speaks the word. This, this Jesus can do anything. Turns up in Peter's house and heals his mother-in-law and then heals the whole town. There's just nothing he can't do, it seems. He's like those... Performers in, in one of those films, you know, maybe you've seen a sports film where like a, a no-hoper team or <clears throat> athlete takes on a series of different teams to win a tournament. Maybe like, even like Wimbledon, you remember that, that film from about 15 years ago where this, kind of, this guy that's kind of on the ropes finishing his career, he plays the, the rounds of Wimbledon 
And because and it's Hollywood, he beats them all and he gets to the, the final. And always in the final, if you noticed in these sports films, the final, it's not, always, it's not just that they play the hardest, toughest, greatest team in the world, but they're always evil as well. <laughs> the, the person they play is always someone despicably cruel and cold. And, and, and so you really even more want the underdog to win. Jesus is the classic underdog. He's been through the, the sort of layers of difficulty and he's kind of got now, oh, to a storm. <laughs> It's all very well healing people, and maybe the healings were kind of psychosomatic anyway, and you know, it was placebo, and he's just kind of, you know, people pretend they're better, and this is real. This is really dangerous, and not just bad for the people who are sick, but bad for us. We're going to drown. And he's asleep. He's asleep. Talk about disillusionment. He's not equal to the biggest challenge. Now, bear in mind that Jesus keeps doing this. This this is one of the main methods of discipleship that he uses. He keeps putting himself and his disciples into situations where, where it's like, this one must be beyond him. He's met his match this time. It really is like this. In fact, the storm is still an early round. For him, because there'll come a time when it won't just be, Master, we're perishing. But there'll be the day when they'll say, you're perishing. In fact, there'll be the day when they'll say, he's perished. He's dead. He's buried. What was that all about? It seems like he's giving little kind of tasters of the cross all the way through his training of them. He's teaching them to understand. He's trying to prepare them, if, in a sense, for the worst. He's saying to them, there'll be times where you will think all is lost. There's going to be a time when you'll be convinced. There'll be Good Friday. There'll be Easter Saturday when it's like, all is lost. I pinned my hopes to a dead man. All is lost. What was that all about? I, he's dead. He's asleep in the fullest sense of the word. He is asleep. We can't rouse him. He's gone forever. He's gone. What kind of fraud was he? And what kind of fools were we? Perhaps those kind of thoughts came through. And I, I know that may be weird to imagine them thinking maybe, maybe he was a fraud. But actually, that is what so often follows with disillusionment, isn't it? Have you noticed that? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. In the other Gospels, in Mark's Gospel, they don't just say, Lord, we're drowning. They say, don't you care? Don't you care? This is what we do, right? When, when we're disillusioned. When he didn't seem sufficient for the trial that we went through. When the thing that I faced was too big for Jesus, when he fell asleep on me. You ever felt like Jesus has fallen asleep on you? Sometimes it's at the point of deep crisis where you think, if ever there was a time where he's supposed to show up, here's your moment, Jesus. It's your time to shine. (laughs) This is when you show up. You're on a white horse and whisk me away. Maybe some of you have been through times in your life where 
It was, it was the hardest it's ever been for you, and it felt at just that time that he was most absent. It felt like he's asleep. And you don't just say, wake up. You start saying, don't you care? Your heart is tempted to accuse him of callousness, right? Don't you care is not actually just a question in our minds. It's often an accusation in our hearts. You don't care. You ever prayed like that? I have. Definitely. You don't care. You can get to that point. I, I trusted you, and I've followed you. You don't care. This, this, is, this is very important, what Jesus is doing. He's teaching them to handle those times. They're going to come again. He wants them to, to understand something. We might think, where, where does that come from, that instinct to say, you don't care about me? We do do it. It's all through the Bible. Not these, these guys are not strangers. They, you go through the Bible, you find it again and again. You remember, even after being rescued from slavery, those Israelites in the wilderness, did you bring us out here to kill us? That's their accusation. They fling in his face. That's their, don't you care? Why do we do, do this? Why do we talk to him like that? Why do we, in our hearts, at least feel tempted to accuse him of carelessness? Maybe it's because, well, I've been let down all my life. Some of you, that would be a, a definite story that you could tell. You could give account after account of how you've been let down by people who should have known better and who you trusted, or you, you should have trusted. You, you know, it's the people you're meant to trust, maybe as a child or as a teenager. You, you trusted and, and people let you down, and so there's an instinctive suspicion that seems to grow up. You feel, I can't trust people. They don't care about me. And so I find it hard to trust Jesus. And I understand that. I get that. That's, that's going to happen probably if you've had it underlined and repeated in bold and in italics. People let you down. It can turn into a kind of coldness in your heart. But I want you to understand that isn't the root of it. Whatever's happened to you, however many times you've been let down... And it's possible you've been let down an unspeakable amount. But that isn't the root of our distrust. The Bible points to something deeper. The Bible goes back further. The Bible goes back to the very beginning. Because in the first paradise that God made for us, there was absolutely no reason for us to show him distrust. No one had ever treated us wrong. No one had ever let us down. And still, we treated God the Father with suspicion. Still, we said, you don't want us to have the fruit of this tree because you don't want us to be equal with you. What we've done from the beginning as fallen humanity, what we've all of us done, those who've got tragedy in our lives and those of us who've got affluence and comfort, probably quite a lot of people in Brighton and Hove, got fairly easy life, in the end, my friend, it's the same story for us all. There is a deep-seated suspicion and distrust towards God. There's a tendency to assume the worst of him, to believe that he does not have the power, he does not have the wisdom, and he doesn't care. Or just one of the above. 
Maybe he does have the power. Maybe he does have the wisdom, but he just doesn't care. Maybe he does care. Maybe he's wise, but he just doesn't have the power. Maybe he does have the power, and, and he really loves me, but he just doesn't get it. He's not wise enough. He's not up-to-date enough. He's not 21st century enough. All kinds of combinations are possible, but the root of it is sheer distrust. It's, it's having a view of God, a view of his son that is trivial, where he's not sufficient. He's not enough for me. He's not. I need a greater God than that. When we think like that, we will panic in every storm. And the thing to bear in mind is that Jesus sees that problem that you and me share as our biggest one. Our biggest problem. You see that actually in the way he handles it. So this is the third thing I want to look at. The master's response. So you see the danger You see the disillusionment, and then you see the master's response. And what Jesus does here is completely counterintuitive. And it's fascinating, and it's kind of funny to me. I only really noticed it this week when I was really getting into the text. Matthew, Luke and Mark, they tell the same story, but they don't give you the order of how Jesus deals with the situation. Matthew does. He wants you to see the, the order in which Jesus handles this they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? (laughs) Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Now that word then is fascinating because it's like, what, what do you think the priority is in this situation, Jesus? This is a crisis right here. And and usually, when you're facing a situation of emergency, the smart people in the room focus on the emergency. They don't see this as the right moment to give a little TED talk on how to overcome your trouble with unbelief and fear. It's like he just, and it's not just kind of strange, but it's like lack of tact. I mean, maybe it's not a TED talk, it's just a sentence, but it's still a tactless one. This is a real panic time. You, you, you deal with the problem. You deal with the problem. And if you have something to say to us about our unbelief, then save it for the tactful time. Not now, when the waves are 30 feet high. Who do you think you are? If you call the ambulance or call the fire engine, when you know it's, there's a fire in my house, could you send someone round now? And the person at the end of the line says... Well, let's first talk about you and how you're handling this uh, whole fire <laughs> situation. Are you, are you feeling emotional about it? Is that, do you feel your emotion is well-placed? Do you feel... I think your, your whole panic, it says something about your attitude towards us as a fire department. I think you may need to consider how you treat people. It's not really... So, so this is just bizarre. I mean, it's just totally grotesque, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? You, just, you don't do this. But Jesus does. Jesus does. What's, what's, why? What, what's the lesson here? What's the point here? J- Jesus is, is making a point. See, for Jesus, the storm, storm's easy. Really easy. You're going to find out in a moment just how easy it is. The storm's nothing. 
I can handle the storm. Forget the storm. It's you guys. It's you guys that really bother me. It's your attitude. It's your distrust. It's your suspicion. It's your panic. It's your unbelief. I just don't get it. I don't get it. Why are you afraid? Why? Ask yourself, why are you afraid? To you and me, that's a weird question. But for Jesus, honestly, it is a straight question. He simply, it's not on his grid. He doesn't do fear. Not like that. And he's saying, that's the problem. Honestly, that's the problem. And and we're not moving on until I've addressed it. (laughs) Can we talk about it later? Sometimes in the morning at breakfast time when it's, you know, house is a bit crazy. Kids got a school run. I've got hundreds of kids, so it's all a bit crazy. And there's there's occasionally the necessity of just addressing uh, misbehavior on on behalf of the children, (coughs) Uh, which, um, which I sometimes do right. You know, sometimes I do not. And if they were preaching a sermon, you'd hear that. But, but sometimes I get it right. And, and whatever, sometimes when, I, when, I, when I'm doing it, I'll say to them, let's go into another room, I need to talk to you about this. And the response might be, I'm going to be late for school. Can't this wait? <laughs> and I'll say to them, blame me when you get to school. This is more important. I'll, I'll talk to the school. School's fine. This is more important right now. Jesus, Jesus honestly sees the storm on the sea as nothing compared to the storm inside the disciples. That, that, that storm that just keeps welling up, the anxiety, the panic, the foolishness, which shows itself in all kinds of manifestations as you read through the, the Gospels. He sees that as the real storm, let's deal with this. Let's focus, get this. let's focus on the right thing right here. And it's the same, friends, it's the same for you and me. It is the same. It will be the same this week. It will be the same this afternoon for some of you. Something will happen. A, a, a message will come through, a phone call, an email, some, some new development. And, and the temptation to turn this into a point of, I cannot trust you, Jesus. I just can't trust you. Will emerge. And, and, and those are the times that these stories are given us for. So that we come back to, what do I know about you? What do I know about you? I, I've got to fill my mind with what I know about you. I'll call to mind your mighty works your sovereign acts of power, I will remind myself of who you are and what you're like. I will become more impressed with you than I am with the waves. And until we get to that point, we will constantly quake, we'll constantly panic, we'll constantly live there. Jesus is determined because he's such a good teacher. It's such a patient one. It takes years, doesn't it? It's taken decades for me. Still doing it. I still need this sermon. But he's patient and he'll get me there. 
He'll get us there. He'll train us. He'll train us again and again to learn to trust, to learn to see things in the right proportion, to understand who he is, understand everything else in the light of that because we'll tend to think of it wrongly. We'll see our boss as the real problem or our team at work is there the real problem or my parents, they're the real problem. My kids, the big problem in my life is my kids. I just, what do I do? My, problem, my big problem is my health or my lack of it. That's the problem. The real problem is my money. My finances are just, I just that's, that's the problem. And I keep bringing, Jesus, look at the problem. Look at the problem. I'm perishing. Jesus, sometimes he doesn't seem to notice the problem. He just seems to say, look, you're looking the wrong way. Look look, look at the problem inside. Look at the distrust. Look at the unbelief. How do we deal with it? Jesus is so kind in this story. He doesn't just say, guys, stop it. Trust me, we'll get through this. And then you want to give a bit of, you know, some bits of advice Knows a few things. He's the son of God. He, could, he knows where to keep the life vests. You know, it's all right. We'll be all right. No. <laughs> he does something better than that. He gives them a trauma. <laughs> he gives them a trauma greater than the one they've already had today. He shows them what to be frightened of. That's what you and me need. When you face a scary storm, you need a scarier God. That's literally what happens. He said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Wow. Great storm. What does a great calm look like? <laughs> I just, the word is reflective, right? Symmetry. Like, great storm. Great calm. It's terrifying. It's so scary. It's so calm. It shocks. How how did you do that? Honestly, friends, until you understand that these men would have now been terrified, you don't get this story. It says says they marveled. In Mark's gospel, it says they were greatly afraid. (laughs) The storm is scary, but this Jesus, I don't know where to start. They were scarred for life. They, They would have talked about it Shaking until they died in their later years, these men. They, would have, they were genuinely terrified. I can't believe, you, you, did you just do that? And he did. It wasn't just, he, he, he said a word and it gradually died down. It, it, it's a great calm, Mark says, immediately. Who does that? Who are you? But it's what the Bible says. You know that the Bible says that he's doing this now. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. He upholds creation by the word of his power. By his words. He's doing it now. It's because Jesus' word is powerful. Because his voice is powerful. Because he says, let there be light. And creation got rolling. It's because of Jesus' words that you're still breathing now. You might think, you know, I'm breathing because I'm getting away with it. Jesus is busy sorting something else out. Wrong. 
He is actively involved in every atom in creation. He upholds all things by the power of his word. In him, all things hold together, Paul says to the Colossians. <laughs> He's not a stranger to the storm. It's like, gosh, what a storm. I better quieten it down. No, no, the storm started because of Jesus. Everything's obedient to Jesus, including the storm. Just up till then, the storm's instructions were, be a storm. <laughs> now it's, be quiet. Oh, okay. Jesus treats the storm like an over-enthusiastic pet. Really, he is the master. Shh! Sit! That's what he's like. Who, who, who is like this? This is the Lord of glory. They, they see him. They see him again. Oh, how foolish we were. I knew there's something about you. I, know, I knew the leper was right when he knelt down and called you Lord. And, and you're in the boat with us. You're with us. You're in the storm. You're Emmanuel. You're with us. God is with us. I don't have to live in fear. God is with me. He's training them. He's training them. He's training you, right? He's training you. Do you believe him? When he hit the waves, do you believe him? Oh, God, teach me. Train me. Help me to believe it. Jesus is so kind, but he's, he's doing it with a goal in mind. He wants people who live in peace. He wants disciples who have his peace. He was asleep in the storm, and they thought that was peculiar. No, he thought they were peculiar for not being asleep. Who would sleep in a storm? Have you ever seen a baby asleep in the car for hours? When, when, sometimes it's a bumpy ride. Sometimes on a plane ride, with, I've been on planes where the turbulence makes you think the plane's going to flip and turn over. And this baby's just kind of... <laughs> why is that? Why, baby, why toddlers? Why two-year-olds like that? I think maybe it's because two-year-olds think their parents are running the universe. Two-year-olds just think, well, my parents are in charge of everything, worse luck. <laughs> but it does mean that I'm safe. I'm safe. They sleep in the car, they sleep on the plane, just... When they're asleep, they sleep. It's just, uh, they've got it. Jesus is, is living that way. He does life that way. As an adult, he knows his father, he's in control. He's learned to be sleepy in storms. And he wants you to learn to be restful, able to rest. He, he wants that for you. He doesn't, he doesn't say, look, look, I can sleep. No, he says, oh, guys, I want this for you. Why are you afraid? Join me. Join me in my rest. Join me in my peace. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. He says in this, even another psalm, surely, surely this came to mind as the disciples kind of rode away. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. Psalm 4 verse 8. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You alone. Who's going to help you? Who's going to give you safety? Who's going to see you through this tough, tough time? Who's going to get you through the storm? Who's going to help you with your kids, with your parents, with your boss, with your team, with your money, with your, your sickness, with the government, with whatever? What are you looking to? You alone, you alone make me dwell in safety. Safety. Jesus is training us to believe that. Let's just pray. Perhaps the band could come and join me. <clears throat> As we come to the table, we remember the one who was taken into the storm. You know that Matthew uses the word for, for earthquake, seismos. He uses a word that 
It's not just storm, it's a quake. The only other time he uses that word is in chapter 27 where it says, as Jesus died, the earth shook. This storm is just a sign of the storm to come. And Jesus didn't survive that storm. He was taken into it, swallowed up. Jesus is showing his great power, but he's showing his extraordinary mercy and love that he's going to take the storm on for us. He goes down with it so that we could have peace, we could have safety. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this Savior. Thank you for his power. Thank you for the, the wonder of who he is. We pray that you'd help us to learn, learn, learn to rest in his sufficiency at every stage of life. Help us to help one another in this. Help us to encourage each other in the dark, in the storm. In Jesus' name, amen.